Kia ora aotearoa and welcome to Generally Famous, a stuff podcast. I'm Simon Bridges and every week I talk to generally famous but always interesting guests about life, <laughs> love and what makes them tick. Don't laugh. Um, today, well, she's been acting since she was two. New Zealand great uh, actor and acting coach, Dame Miranda Harcourt. Welcome. Thank you very much. Hey, it's great to be with you. Let's begin at the beginning. I I don't even know that I'm exact. I'm sure I must be right. You grew up in Wellington? Sure did. Yep. I, I was um, I grew up in Wadestown and then um, went up to Karori, uh up in the hills in the mist. And describe, I presume it was, I, I, I'm not trying to offend you, but I presume it was a sort of a, just knowing about your parents, or at least not knowing them, but having a sense of it. I mean, I presume it was a very comfortable middle class, possibly even upper middle class, and it was stimulating and all those things. Is that sort of right? Uh, look, I, it was definitely stimulating. And um, it was a funny growing up experience because my parents were both, as you say, they were both upper middle class New Zealanders. My father was from a... Yeah. Real estate family, if you've um, ever yeah. heard of Harcourt. It's in the name. Yeah, yeah, it's in the name. So he, that was his father, all of his brothers, his his grandfather. They were um, Harcourt's real estate. And um, so they did all right for themselves. And then my father was like, no, I'm going to be an actor, broadcaster, musician. And um, um, and meanwhile, my mother was from a um, North Canterbury farming family, and they were also very yeah. well to do. She was like, No, I'm what was going it, Amberley well. or something beginning with A? Yeah, yeah, Amberley, right. um, yeah. Culverden, around those, um, those areas is where she grew up in the d- deep in the um, in the hills of Canterbury, and they were very well to do. And um, and she went to opera school and she wanted to become an actor. So by the time I came along, there was no money, <laughs> yeah, so they were right. they were middle class people, <laughs> but they were both trying to become and successfully trying to become independent artists yes. and um you know creative practitioners at a at, in 90 in the early 1960s which was ridiculous so what you're saying to me is um socially uh middle or actually even possibly better than that but you know there wasn't there wasn't oodles of dosh rolling around because no. they were in no. the arts yeah yeah there was um, no money and that's that's exactly how we um Stuart and I Stuart McKenzie, my husband and I, we've reflected that in our um, the way we brought our children yep. up because when our kids, who are now 24, 22 and 16, when they were um, little kids, the big ones, that we, there was no money. We were often down at Newtown Supermarket going, oh, sorry kids, yes. we can't be going home with these groceries today because there's no money in the FBOS card. So, um, um, yeah, it's it's funny, those reflections. And I presume it's actually feast or famine, right? You've just done a big gig. You've been on the Lord of the Rings and suddenly it's payday and life's amazing, but that's got to tie you over for quite a while. Yes, yes. So you have to become a careful budgeter, a lesson I never learned, but um, those around <laughs> me did, luckily. <laughs> and, and actually, just, just sticking with your parents for a sec, I mean, look, we obviously, as I say, your father, very well known, your mother, um, uh, Dame Kate, Harcourt, you know, again, um, a famous actor. Um, were you conscious? I just think, I think about with my kids, poor souls that they are, having me as a father, people love or hate or, you know, everything. Were you conscious of them being, you know, well-known people on the stage? And, and did that have an effect on you? Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you just, as with your kids, Simon, I'm sure you grow up um, with in the environment that you're in and you don't realise it's weird until you're, I don't know, six or seven, that's when it starts. you start to go, hmm, other people don't seem to be having the same experience as me. So, yeah, I, I was aware because, you know, we would walk down the road and people would say, oh, um, Peter, I love your shows on the radio. Oh, you know, you you save my bacon every morning, Kate, when you do that show on the radio. My mother did a half an hour show called Listen With Mother in the mornings. This is before... TV was ubiquitous in New Zealand, and yes. she was a lifesaver. I still meet old yeah. ladies in pharmacies. All my life, I've met people um, who, who've who come up to me and said, I would not have survived the early years of having my children if it wasn't for your mother. So she was a real mother to the nation, and people were very grateful to her um, for that. And then she would, of course, come home and practice all those stories and poems and games and songs on Gordon and me, my brother Gordon. And um, so yes. we got a lot of great fiction input at an early age because she was practicing on us the material that she was then going to go and use being the mother of the nation. 
I had intended to ask this, and you can tell me off if you like, but I, not knowing them at all, but I would have a set, I mean, I, was she particularly maternal or not really? Because I just would have thought they're in the arts, they'd be quite cerebral people, you know, in an adult world, and maybe um, k- kids don't get quite the look in they do as a result of that. Oh, look, I completely agree. It was a, a great irony because she was very busy looking up, you know, like be, doing radio broadcasts and TV broadcasts for all the other children. And <laughs> that meant that me and my brother, we missed out on getting the the um, quality time with our own parents that you would yeah. normally expect. I guess it's like the, you know, Alison Holst, who was the same generation as my mother. She lived up the road from yes. us in Karori. And my God, her, the inside of her fridge was remarkable. The meat lives. Um, Oh, the meatloafs, the rumbles, <laughs> the meringues. We, you would open the fridge at Alison Hall's house and it's like music w- would come out. It was amazing. I mean, it wouldn't but, quite um, have but, been as good as sort of Hudson and Hall. I feel like they'd have a good party with those sort of old-time champagne flutes th- and so on. Oh, I think if you, if you were a grown-up with Hudson and Hall, then you'd be having a good time at Alison Hall's for kids. She didn't. There were no rum barbas swimming in alcohol in her fridge. It was all really great <laughs> school lunches. You know, really great celery stuffed with peanut butter and raisins on top. It was like you know, it was really great kid food. But Wonderful. but I um, I guess what I'm saying is that if you're a great chef, your kids maybe eat takeaways because you're you're busy at work. And if you're a if you uh, are um, people like my parents who had Junior Magazine, the very first children's television program in New Zealand and Listen With Mother, the very first radio children's entertainment program in, in New Zealand, you're very busy researching, making, entertaining other children and you maybe your own kids do get a little bit left out. What, what's weird, um, and I mean that I think in a good way, but we don't really do sort of dynasties in New Zealand, but you guys are like an acting dynasty. Is that, I mean, I suppose my question is... How? What? What do you think that? I presume you're going to tell me it's not by design. It's sort of how has this happened that you know your your mum is a dame because of acting. Now you are your children are you know I think to lesser or greater degrees now regarded actors. How has this sort of happened? Well, n- well, number one, there are a number of um, of families in New Zealand. You know, as there are all over the world, that um, where it's the 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 tool that gets passed down. There's the Hobbs family and the O'Sullivan family. Jess Hobbs yeah. recently won an uh, an a BAFTA. Was it a BAFTA that she won or an Emmy for directing The Crown? I mean, she's remarkable. Her mother, Aileen O'Sullivan, mm. is a, a esteemed director, and um, her sister Jessica Hobbs is a, a esteemed writer and was an actor. And her brother Chris Hobbs. You know, the, the, so there's that family. That some of them are Hobbs, some of them are O'Sullivans, and so maybe um, uh, th- that makes it more confusing to see them as a dynasty. The McRae family are, the, are a three generational: um, Liz McRae, Kathy McRae, and now their children, the um, the Bollinger um, group, who who right. are remarkable makers of web series. So there are a number of other families: the um, the Hawthorne family, uh, who who've handed down the baton as the generations have gone on. Uh, and then there's 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 our family, and um, for some reason, um, pe- people have taken note. But I'd say it wasn't that my mother, for example, gets to be a dame for her services solely to acting. It's really services right. to the theatre, services to the screen yes. arts. It's it's a whole bunch of it's like it's for generosity, which is spirit, true for you also, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like I think give and you and you will receive. So if you're a generous person. If you're a connector, if you go, you've got some skill and talent there. Why don't I connect you up with somebody else and then let's see if we can lift off a career. I, I'm very interested in um, outward flow and supporting other people in their careers. That's why I'm now a coach m- much more than I'm an actor because yeah. I, I got sick of it being about me. I did my first job when I was two. Now I'm 60. That's 58 years of acting. And mm. there comes a point where you're like, oh, my goodness, I'm so sick of thinking about myself. I would rather turn that lens around and think about some other people. Was there a sense you could have done something else, though? I mean, you, you could have been a Harcourt's realtor selling properties in, um, in Vicargill or something, and, you know, who knows? I, it, don't, it, I don't think so. 
When I was at school, and my daughter, my, I've still got a daughter who's at the same school as I went to, Marsden and Karori. When I was at school, in my fifth form year, if anyone listening remembers school certificate, I was the person in the entire country who got the widest gap the split between their lowest mark and their highest mark. I got 98% for English, which was the highest mark in the whole country. And maths and science were so good. No, I can't even remember science, but maths, I got 17, 17%, and and then 98 for English. So that tells you why um, possibly I was never going to go down the real estate route. But is it genes or is it, um, here's a fancy word, mimetic, is it imitative? You, you, you saw what mum and dad were doing and so that was kind of always the course you were on. Of course. Well, a bit of look, Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks uh, I read recently, he says the same thing about he, his kids. He goes, we've got a strong family culture, we love each other and if, and if he and his wife had been electrical engineers, then their children probably would have gone down the route of electrical engineering. And... and I would say the same. It's you. Um, it is mimetic. You see what's around you, and you you pick up that culture and you run with it. And it just happens that um, our kids have run not just with the performing arts culture, but the culture of turning your hand to whatever happens to be the thing of the moment. Sometimes it's acting, sometimes it's coaching, sometimes it's directing, sometimes it's writing, sometimes it's being a dramaturg or a journalist. They're all facets of the arts in some way. And um, and I, I think that what we've given to our children is, and what my parents gave to me, a great appreciation for flexibility, creativity, um, taking what you see in the moment and turning your hand to um, c- creating change, really, um, not being locked inside uh, an employment model where somebody else is the boss and you get a weekly wage, but instead making mm. your own life and forging your own fortune. Do you, do you um, and again, I don't mean this in any way, um, I hope, negatively, but do, do, do you feel a sense of, um, I, I suppose, privilege that you had this massive head start in, an, in, a, in, a, in a sector that is notoriously difficult through to impossible um, in as much as your folks you know they were there they had the connections they had the brand do you feel that or do you sometimes sit there and say no look I wish I was a I wish they were plumbers no no I've never wished that I mean really this is um this is the New Zealand version of the Nepo baby um, argument <laughs> and um, and yes in terms of what I wanted to do I mean look you asked before was there anything else I could have done yeah I really want to be a teacher because I, I and as it turns out now, I'm a really good teacher. You are, and that's what I initially wanted to do. I wanted to go to teachers training college, and I was really passionate about um, children and kids, and um, and um, handing on a passion for education and passion for information. And but because my parents were actors, people were always ringing up saying, "Oh, you've got a eight year old. Can we put her in our thing?" You've got a 12-year-old. Could she be in our TV show? You've got a 15-year-old. Does she want to audition for our blah, blah, blah? <laughs> so, yeah, I completely fell into it, as I say, since the age of two when I played Catherine Mansfield in a documentary, you know, playing in a sandpit. I played, obviously, the two-year-old Catherine Mansfield. <laughs> but um, so, look, it's not that I um, always had a passion to do this. I fell into it. I did it for a, a while. I rode my dinghy down that route of being an actor for a fair few years. And you know what? Now I've gone all the way back to what I originally actually wanted to do, which is being a teacher. And I want to talk to you about acting and teaching and, you know, what what that's like. One last, I can't promise it's the last, but one last sort of family one around this. How then do you feel about your children? You've got, um, you know, most famously Thomason, of course, who's, you know, had great success. Um, how do you feel about them taking up the, the, the craft of, you know, your parents and you? I feel great about it because they're really good. So uh, so I can see that, um, you know, they've the ones who have wanted to do it, which are Thomason and Davida. Davida's 16, Thomason's 22, and there, um, Thomason, as you say, has had great success. In, in the Nepo baby argument, you cannot argue that Thomason's um, family, her parentage and her family has had anything to do with her international success because, mm-hmm. I mean, come on, we're from New Zealand. You know, mm-hmm. it's a tiny place at the bottom of the world, and there are many, many actors who've tried to scale the you know, the foothills of Mount Everest in terms of making a, um, uh, an international career. Thomason has got where she is today 100% of her own talent and hard work. 
and and good on her. And I'm really so wholeheartedly excited and thrilled to see what she's doing. In fact, that's why we've got to finish our interview a little bit early today because I've got to yeah. get home to take her to the airport because she's going to Paris to um, Paris Fashion Week. Amazing. She's going to go and do you know the celebrity red carpet there, and then after she's been to Paris, she's going to Nairobi with um, the New Zealand charity So They Can uh, to go and, and make a visit on the ground there to the So They Can schools and. Um, uh, empowerment centers for women. So she's, you know, using her um, her profile to make a difference as much as she can. And so she's well and truly on her way. But then hmm. Davida, who's only 16, she's been in a film playing, um, she's been in a film opposite Kira Knightley, Roman Griffin Davis, uh, Matthew Good, some very famous actors. She just finished wow. two films in Australia last year. Um, in New Zealand, we know her from the the Waka Kotahi ad, the you know reduce your speed ad. So, um, mm-hmm. you know she she's make, making her way as well. She's really um, well and truly um, making her way as a young actress. And then our son Peter, who's now become a journalist, he was a really successful actor for a fair few years. He acted opposite Ian McKellen. He was in award-winning short films. He was in The Hobbit. You know he he was um, succeeding as an actor. And then one day he woke up and he went, "What am I doing? I don't." I've fallen into this, just like my mother did. I've fallen into it. I don't really want to be doing this. I want to use my life and my brain in other ways. Get me out of here. So yeah. um, he pulled the plug on his American agent. He pulled the plug on his New Zealand agent. And um, he went to university, did a law degree, and now he's doing an MA at Columbia on a Fulbright scholarship. Um, Fantastic. An MA in journalism in New York. So he's doing pretty damn well, but on his own terms. He, he had to struggle to escape the um, the acting and directing thing at the heart of our family. What what advice would you give them as young ones coming through in your profession, or, or if you want to depersonalise? I mean, what advice would you give to yourself? You know, forty um, odd years years ago, um, around acting as a as a career. Well, the advice that I would give to me is different to the advice I'd give kids now, and that's not because I'm any different from them. It's just that the um, the industry has changed. Mm-hmm. Things around us has changed. The audience's taste has changed, and, um, and f- filmmaking and television making has changed. Forty years ago when I was starting out, there was actually an industry where you could be more or less a full-time creative in the theatre, in, the, um, in the screen arts. Um, there, were lo- there were lots of jobs and now there are way fewer jobs and more people trying to do, do those jobs. Um, yeah. So it's a, it's a funny thing. I'd say you've got to be a human first because what directors want to see, what casting directors want to see and what audiences want to see is a reflection of actual humanity on the screen. They don't want to see your craft. They don't want to see you acting. They just want to see you reflecting what it is to be a real human. And in order to reflect what it is to be a real human, you've got to actually be a real human. So mm. I would say don't put all your focus on being an actor, put all your focus on studying psychology, on studying um, whatever floats your boat, whether it's, you know, um, uh, mathematics or whether it's architecture or whatever it is. And yeah, be an actor, but, um, Mm. but be a person first. Yeah, it's good advice. You've, you know, had many roles. Um, I think some of us of a certain generation probably think of you in gloss, but you know, there's there's so much else uh, there as 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 well, and of course, a lot on stage. Um, what ones would you say? You know, looking back, bearing in mind what you've said that now you really are a teacher and a coach. When you look back at your acting career, what what ones you enjoy the most, proudest of? You you, you sort of tell me. Well, the ones that have been most useful and resonant, because there's lots of things that I've done uh, that I've enjoyed, but they are, what's that word begins with E and it means it disappears? Uh, um, not esoteric. Ethereal. Ephemeral. Ephemeral. The, ephemeral will do, the, yeah. <laughs> e- ephemeral is the one. It's like, you know, you, you do a performance, particularly on stage, you do a performance, it lasts for a month or six weeks or however long, and that's it, man. It is gone. So um, I, I don't even talk about those experiences anymore because they, they're, they're past. But the, the experience of acting, which has been most useful to me and which I've carried forward into my life as a coach um, working with a lot of very famous actors in Hollywood, as well as new actors that are, whose careers are just emerging, whether I'm working on Zoom or whether I'm working in, the, um, in a masterclass situation or one-on-one on the phone at one in the morning as I was with extremely famous person X 
who was freaking out last night going, holy hell, they've changed the schedule and I'm doing the scene that I've done no preparation on. So, um, you know, it's all um, all times of the night and the day, uh, my job. But the, the experience that has been most useful is going into the New Zealand prison system and performing, writing with William Brandt, devising and performing the show verbatim and another show called Portraits, mm-hmm. which Stuart and I wrote, where the New Zealand prison system allowed, they gave us funding actually, me and William, to go into eight prisons throughout New Zealand and interview maybe 40 or 50 men and women who'd, who'd committed really serious violent crimes. And we went through these eight prisons, we, we talked to them, we recorded their voices, we transcribed what they said, we turned it into a show, and through those people we connected with their mums, their sisters, their girlfriends, their children. You'll note that there are no dads there because mm. it was very tricky to track down those dads. But we talked to their families about how those men and women's experience of committing violent crime had affected their own families. And we knew that they would, that men and women in prison would be much more interested in hearing uh, those stories than they would be in listening to the uh, to stories of their victims, because what we were we were using theatre for social change, and we wanted to create um, uh, psychological and behavioural change. Then we went back into we toured that show verbatim, uh, which was a solo show performed by me through every single prison in New Zealand, and also many many schools in New Zealand, watched by thousands and thousands of school children, including Taika Waititi, who said to me recently that was one of the um, the things that made him want to do what he does now, seeing that show at Wellington High all those years ago. And um, then we took it overseas to festivals. We performed it in theatres. I took it to prisons um, overseas, performed it in prisons, all, all the prisons in New South Wales, prisons in London. And that, as you can imagine, had a huge impact on me. And that's what I mean when I say you've got to be a human first. That was the perfect fusion of a human experience coupled with a performing arts experience. Because, man, did I learn a lot talking to those people in the first place and then performing um, to those audiences in the second place. So that show, Verbatim, which celebrates the, the poetry of um, of how real people really speak, which you call Verbatim Theatre, that's my most, um, that's my taonga. How did it change your perception of... I don't know, I suppose prisons. I don't know, did you go in with a certain view and come out with a different one? Uh, or did d- you kind of think they were crappy, terrible places and at the end of it you still thought they were crappy, terrible places? No, I didn't think so at all. Uh, you know, and um, it's a while since... Uh, actually, it's not such a while since I was in a prison. I, I've increasingly, you know, I, I've gone back on a number of occasions and visited Arohata here in Wellington, for example. But... Um, but Back in the day, like the prison Rangipur, mm-hmm. I thought it was incredible. And I could see that there were some life-changing programs in place in those prisons. And on, uh, in, so, on some occasions, in some of those prisons, they were crappy and horrible. Sure. But in some of them, and Rangipur and Arohata are two that come to my mind, I was like, wow, I feel like these... Um, men and women are lucky at this point in their lives to have the intervention that the programs, the educational programs, behavioural programs that are running inside the prison system are implementing. One of them is still going now, actually. It's something that I I began, but it became too big for me to run by myself. And so my friend Karen Palmer has taken it over. It's called Bedtime Stories. And it Mm. was um, when I was at Tuifakari, the New Zealand drama school, we would take a sound recordist into Arohata and we got uh, Clean Slate Press to give us a whole bunch of free books. And we'd take the books into the prison and we'd ask the women to choose a book for their own kid, whatever age that kid was, you know, from babies through to teenagers. And we would record the women reading stories to their kids and then we'd send the family uh, that recording so that those little kids just like I did when I was growing up with my mother, those kids would get to hear their mum who's incarcerated. They'd get to hear her voice reading a story at nighttime, which I think is really important so that you can um, feel, you can hear your mum saying, you know, um, hi, buds, I love you and here's a story for you. So that was a, that was a great uh, initiative that came out of the, the verbatim work that I did in prisons, which is still going now thanks to Bedtime Stories. Of course, that was written by your, your husband, um, Stuart McKenzie. What's... Um also fascinating to me is when I think about you, what comes through clearly is you've done so much acting with your mum, with your 
uh, a husband, or he's written it um, with Thomason. What's that dynamic like? Because I'm sitting there saying, I wouldn't want to be doing that with my family. <laughs> Maybe that says too much about me. I don't know, but I would, I don't know. It would, it would, I would find it hard to be human first in that situation and be natural. Uh, yeah, mm. Run me through how it has been with your whanau acting. Well, I mean, Stuart is a writer. He was an actor and then he sure. became a writer, but he's still a really good actor. And, um, uh, and look, our whole family situation is, is really centered around Stuart. He's a great intellect. He's a fantastic parent. Um, he's the rock and I'm a little bit more the wind. And um, uh, he's also a great cook, I've got to say. And uh, uh-huh. he's, he is the central. What's the best at? He's best at um, he's he makes vegetarian dishes now. He's become vegetarian, but he used to make a great teriyaki on um, sweet corn hmm. with chives, like an amazing kind of a, a salady thing. He's really good at pasta, and his favorite dish, in fact, our whole family's favorite dish, has become iconic at our family, is lemony chickpea soup, which originally comes from Ray McVinnie, but Stuart right. has honed it over the years, and now. The reason it's our favorite is because over recent times, since we've been traveling with Thomason for about five or six years, since she did her first away job when she was 15 in um, Portland, Oregon, since then we've done a lot of traveling with her. Wherever we are, whether we're in Prague on Jojo Rabbit or Portland, Oregon on Leave No Trace or in a gorgeous house we lived in in London doing the um, the Edgar Wright movie, uh, wherever we are in the world visiting Thomason, she'll come home from a long, hard day at work and, she, and Stuart will say, guess what I've made? She'll go, I hope it's a lemony chickpea soup. <laughs> and, um, and yep, that's what he's made because that's what makes Thomason and Davida and Peter feel like they're at home. And I got you off course, but, you know, we were talking acting and family. And, oh, and right. How that, I mean, do you – well, put it this – when you're there with Thomason on screen, uh, which has happened uh, – is it Thomason, your daughter, or is she, you know, the the, the Viking princess or whatever it is that she's yeah, playing? Yeah. Uh, it is the role. She, you know, I you change your internal perspective when you're acting and you put yourself to one side whilst holding onto your own identity tightly. It's a funny kind of alchemy on the inside of your mind that is completely invisible. But you look at the other person and, of course, you see – the other person, but you also see the other character because the relationship changes. The relationship between you and the other character is different from you and the other person. I look at you, you're my daughter. Not you, Simon, you're not my daughter, but I look at no. Thomason, for example, and, and of course in my lizard brain at the back of my mind I go, you know, Kyoto, you're my daughter. But then in some other alchemical way, you're looking at that person going, you're a stranger or um, or you're somebody I'm looking after or you're um, my daughter but in a different way. I have played – I played Thomason's mother a few times. I was I played Thomason's mother in The Hobbit and I played Thomason's mother in Jean, which um, is the uh, the biographical TV portrait of, um, of Jean Batten, the aviatrix. Mm. So, yeah, I've played – my own role, I am your mother, but I'm a different, in this role, I'm a different kind of mother than mm. I am, than me, Miranda is, if that makes sense. And and it's mm. a funny thing, but both between you, yourself, and the other actor, whoever it is, whether it's Thomason, whoever it is, you, you, you're both agreeing to activate a different part of your relationship in order to create that sense of character. Gotcha. And welcome to the Big Stuff Quiz. I'm your host, Imogen Wells, alongside my assistant, the wonderful Chris Reid. Hello, everyone. Each week, we'll release a new episode to test your wits with two rounds of ten questions. One potluck round and another that's very loosely themed. A bit tangential, even. Such a good word. If you think you're up for the challenge, go and follow our show on your favourite podcast platform, The Big Stuff Quiz, is out now. The Big Stuff Quiz is proudly brought to you by Melbourne. Every bit different. You're now a hugely acclaimed acting coach. 
and teacher. I, I think I know what you're going to tell me, but w- w- which are you better at, do you think, acting or coaching? Oh, I don't know. I can only be a good coach because when I was an actor, I was a good actor. Mm-hmm. And um, and I could only be a good actor because I have, I've got all the knowledge that I now choose to use um, to pass on to other people. But I know what my favorite is. My favorite is coaching. I love coaching. If I, 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 I walked into the studio in Melbourne, I was just in Melbourne on the weekend, and I walked into the studio expecting 14 actors who were the ones that I was coaching. And I knew that there would be some observers. But I, in my mind, I guess I thought 20. So you can see how bad at maths I am. And, um, but I walked in. There were 100 observers. There were 100 people watching me coach 14 actors. So that was lucky I'm an actor. Lucky I'm a performer because that, that could have very easily knocked me off course and I wouldn't have been able to do a good job with the 14 actors because I felt so observed. But, um, but the performer in me came out and we all had a jolly time together. But that was, that was a pretty freaky experience. Normally, <clears throat> excuse me, normally when I'm coaching um, famous people, for example, it's a very private experience on Zoom, sometimes on the phone, sometimes just on email. You're coaching somebody in, their, in the desert or they, you know, they're at the top of a some mm. crazy building in Berlin <laughs> or something. And um, so you've got to cut your cloth. You can't go, well, it always has to be like this. It always has to be on Zoom with a clear connection. You have to have a pencil and a piece of paper. That doesn't work. Sometimes mm. you're, you're shouting into the wind and just um, h- hoping that you can, that the person's understanding that you're offering them support and a, and a pathway forwards. And I say this really only to provoke you, really. But, you know, I sit there and I think of acting, coaching, and it's like, well, you know, get them in the zone, help them pretend to be someone. You know, let's not overcomplicate this. I appreciate this so much more. How do you coach an actor? Uh, well, it depends on what they need, but um, mm. at the moment, the actors that I'm coaching, I write. I would spend two hours a day per actor uh, writing notes for every single line that they say in all the scenes that they're going to be shooting. So those notes might be, let's think about this is what, um, the, here's a, some imagery that might help you. Here is a reference. Here's some music. Here's um, a work of art. The other day I sent Monk's scream to an actor and I said, I think this is a portrait of what your character's feeling on the inside even if we can't see that on the outside. So you're dealing with the external forces that the audience sees, um, and you're also dealing with the inner psychological forces. You're dealing with the meaning of the story. You're dealing with, um, you've got to make this point here, otherwise further on, another half an hour into the story, we won't understand this this other point. You're also saying, don't forget that, um, that five pages ago you said X to character Y. And that's re- so that means that what you're saying now, you know she's lying. So there's many, many jigsaw pieces that um, that come together. I mean, and sometimes if I'm on set with actors, I, I remember an occasion where I'm dealing with somebody who was v- full of fear and, um, and, and just couldn't perform on the day. I was lying on the floor massaging their ankles to, um, to, mm-hmm. to ground that person. So you can see that it's a, a multifaceted thing and it really depends on um, on who you're, you're working with. I, I'm a, tennis... um, a speaker of sign language, of deaf sign language, right. and that has come in very handy for me. Yes. If I'm um, way up the beach, on the on the beach in Hawaii in Soul Surfer, I was, uh, I was coaching Anasphere Rob, a marvellous actress, so I coached when she was a child and I still work with her now. We were on the beach and she was working with Dennis Quaid and Helen Hunt and um, it was a a big effort to wade through the sand and it would take too long to wade through the sand to get all the way up to where they were on the beach from where I was behind the camera. So we devised a kind of sign language that could be read across that distance and um, and that made it very easy to drop in some thoughts and ideas that would advance the performance. You clearly have a philosophy of it though and then you, you have your, um, uh, I'm sure, a reservoir of, of, of techniques. But, I presume, though, but clearly this isn't exactly right because I know, you know, you've been there with Nicole Kidman or, you know, Juliet Binoche or, you know, a number of these really famous, experienced actors and you're you're clearly still teaching them. I just would have thought, presumably, they get to a point where, though, surely it should be instinctive and they no longer kind of need the techniques. 
or have I got that wrong? Well, you, I mean, you use the word teaching and, that, and with mm. those people, of course, it's not teaching because they've mm. made 50 million movies, 50 million TV series. They know what they're doing there. And the reason that they're up there winning Golden Globes, Globes Oscars, Césars, the, the reason that, that, that you can say Nicole or Juliet and people recognize them just by their first names uh, is because they are absolutely at the top of their game. Th- those people, of course, those people don't need to be taught anything, but they need a fellow traveller. You know, right. d- if you're walking along the the open road in the wind, you just need somebody to hold your hand, and um, and that's what I uh, what I, where I think that um, you, you need an intellectual co-pilot. You need um, you need to be sparked up. You know, you need to to feel inspired. You know, and you'll know that from your um, your work yeah. as a politician. You've got all the knowledge, but you just can't do it by yourself. You've got yeah. to have somebody else in the room to talk to. And then you go, at the end of the conversation, you go, oh, right. Okay, now I feel much clearer about what I know I already knew. But because yeah. I, Simon Bridges, have had the conversation with somebody else in my cabinet, now I, I feel clearer about the path forward. So it is just that, um, that sense of, um, of collaborating with an intellectual co-pilot. And I try to bring a lot of the Pacific into my work because I, I, I am from this place and I feel that, makes, um, that helps to make my work unique. And so I talk a lot about Leva, which is the Samoan concept as described by Albert Wendt the philosopher and novelist, as the space between. And really, and this is what we were talking about before in terms of what happens between, you know, if I'm playing Thomason's mother, for example, what, what happens between actors, that's where the work is. The work is between the actors. It's not just Simon or Miranda. The work is what happens between them, the conversation, the flow between them, the conflict, um, the emotion. That's what you're trying to lift up and sharpen as the co-pilot who's helping these very, very skilled actors to do the best that they can do. Because sometimes they're so famous that the director can be a little bit frightened of directing them. Mm. And so they don't get lifted up as much as some of the less... To bring out their best. Yeah, because people go, holy shit, excuse my language. They go, holy shit, that's incredible. It's already an incredible performance. I'm blown away. Let's move on and I'll just direct the other actors. And so that actor is like, I'm being ripped off. I'm being ripped off by my own fame and my own talent yeah. and my own amazingness. If only I, I could just um, lift up my performance in the way that those other actors are getting, are getting support. Well, what do you think makes the most complete, um, wrong word probably, but optimal actor? I mean, at one level, what you're saying to me is it's it's the one who can find that space between and do that and I and I can see that but um, I presume like so many things we've talked a little politics there but you know whether it's politics whether it's lawyering whether it's acrobats there'll be these guys and girls who have their niche and they're amazing at that one part of screen acting or so on but I presume the complete actor is someone who can one day be Pinocchio and the next, I don't know, the villain and blah and the next something else. I mean, what mm. what to you is kind of the complete package? Is you, no, I don't. I think that that's, um, that's the olden days. The olden days used to be you can be Pinocchio one day and the right. whale the next day, you know. Um, but um, But I don't think it is like that anymore. Once you've made your name and you're famous, then you become very interested in um, radical transformation and characterization because people have seen your essential spirit and now they want to see how you can change it. So craft comes into play um, at a later stage in your um, in your trajectory. But I think that, um, especially when you're starting out, it's just an, an inner spirit. And that depends on the time, you know. At, at, on Monday, you've got inner spirit, and then by Friday, you're feeling dragged down, and that inner spirit is gone. So that it's it's a lot about timing, or you know, writing poetry, or or um, inspiring people in a as a politician in a disaster. It's about timing. You've got to have all of your craft skills there, but they're they're beneath the surface. Nobody wants to see you acting. Nobody wants to see you performing. Nobody wants to see you implementing your um, your professional um, uh, corporate coaching skills in order to inspire um, 
people in the Auckland floods. You know, they they mm. want to see that you're just there for them, that you're right there in the moment and you're awake and inspired and your inner spark is is activated. So th- if I um, if I talk about Thomason, for example, whose career obviously I know very well, she was v- extremely lucky. Her inner spark, her age, her everything about her was just at the perfect point when Deborah Granick was looking for the the lead girl to play the thirteen to fourteen year old um, uh, the lead girl in Leave No Trace. So lucky for Thomason, she auditioned all the way over here in New Zealand. Lucky for Thomason, she went to Houghton Valley School and she was a very natural child. Lucky for Thomason, she had the right look, she was the right age. On that day, she was firing on all cylinders. Also, she'd done the work, she'd learnt the lines, she really had great actor's craft. But I'd say that was the least important thing on the day she happened to audition for that film. She happened to score the role. It happened to turn out to be a really amazing film. Because of the relationship between Thomason and Ben Foster, who played her father, they really activated Levar, the space between, in a really amazing way. And now... Thomason is interested in exploring characterization and an actor's craft because um, because that that spark is there in her. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. As an expert, uh, which you undoubtedly are in this, uh, I mean, when you look around right now, I mean, who are some of your favourite actors? Who do you look to and say, yeah, they got that spirit right then? That's amazing. Mm. That's complete. Well, two films that I really love at the moment are um, Mary Marcy Made of Marlene. I think it's by Sean Baker, which is not even a very new film, but it's got a beautiful performance by Elizabeth Olsen at its heart. And she has gone on. That was, I think that was uh, one of her first acting experiences. It's completely raw and uncrafted. She's just full of emotion, full of confusion. It's a beautiful portrait of a broken person. And since then, exactly as I'm saying, she's gone on to become to become very famous. Now she's in the Marvel movies, and now we see um, craft coming into play, characterization, transformation coming into play. But my favourite performance of hers is all the way back on that in that film about a young woman trying to escape a cult, where you just see this raw, untrammeled human. So I love that performance, and I also love this is a bit controversial, but I love Shia LaBeouf in The Peanut Butter Falcon, where he plays opposite a, a Down syndrome actor. And mm-hmm. that performance, once again, is just about Shia LaBeouf truly falling in love with his co-star and, um, and creating a beautiful relationship there between the two of them. So th- you, you get a, um, a feel for my taste. Sure. That's my, that's my taste is um, kind of s- social realist, almost documentary style films. Nomadland starring the wonderful Frances McDormand. Those, those films where you go, is this a documentary? Or is it a drama? Oh no! Okay, now I see it. It's a it's a drama. But on the other hand, I look at um, the films of our wonderful Taika Waititi, who's just such a genius. Um, and you look at Jojo Rabbit, which is made for a purpose. That is Taika messing with us, messing with our understanding of race, messing with our understanding of history, messing with our understanding of um, of relationship, messing with our understanding of comedy. A highly crafted film with a beautiful production design which um, is made for the purpose of making sure that um, that 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds, 15-year-olds understand uh, the Holocaust, which is mm. something that people, that those kids are forgetting. Taika's like, oh my goodness, I've got to make this film so that people of my kids' age understand that only a short period of time ago something terrible happened. So that's a there's a strong um, political edge coming through Taika's comedy on that occasion. And I'd say the same political edge coming through... Um, in his reflection on the socio-economic status of New Zealanders in Boy, or even in Hunt for the Wilder People, he's a very yeah. political person. Yeah. So, so they're they're some of the the great performances that um that I would think about. Touching on that, as I know we draw to a close, how do you sort of say the state of New Zealand um, acting? Uh, is it the current time? Uh, is it in good, fine form? Is it in danger? Where, where do you see it? Well, you can't have acting without um, employers. Mm. I mean, you can if you're going to make a solo show at the Fringe. I saw a great solo show the other day at the Fringe the other day by James Ladagny. Uh In a little venue, it you know, would have cost him $2.50. There was no set. It was just his performance. It was really beautiful. That's, that's where I started 
100% cheap theatre in a free venue uh, where there's very little money being expended. And that, because of the nature of arts funding in New Zealand, that's where many New Zealand actors start out. And I think that's what feeds the success of many of our actors because we start out with nothing except for ourselves. So there is a strong degree of authenticity. I'll tell you a great New Zealand actor who I saw in the weekend, um, James J. Ryan. He's a really wonderful actor. He's had great success in America. He's back in Australia now. Um, he's he's got a, a fabulous sense of authenticity, but also great actor's craft. I really admire him. So yes, there are some very successful and wonderful New Zealanders who are making their way. Look at um, Dave Fane, the um, um, Simul Philippor, who the, these are some act, some actors who are in Taika's next project, and and Taika Waititi himself is, himself is lifting up um, Māori performers and um, and Pacific Island performers in New Zealand and really in, and giving them a voice in a fabulous way, so that um, we um, move towards increasing diversity and representation in the the voices of New Zealand performers offshore. So yeah, that look acting in New Zealand is in really good spirit. There are some great actors. There's some great acting training. But I can't say the same with the opportunities that are being offered to actors. And that comes down to the funding models and the way in which the New Zealand Film Commission, New Zealand On Air, um, the Auckland Theatre Company, the, the court theatre, the, um, the theatres around the country um, are allowed to exist or able to be funded. We just don't have, I guess at the end of the day, Simon, do we have enough people in our country? Do we have enough audiences in our country? to be able to consistently lift up the performing arts experience and the visual arts experience so that the funding can keep going and these wonderful global careers of filmmakers and actors and writers can can keep trucking, trucking on. I came back from Australia in the weekend. I was like, wow. Victoria, Melbourne, where I was working, there are heaps of big money Hollywood movies there. Mm. I think one of those movies it starts uh, it stars Ryan Gosling, and there are three hundred additional roles for Australian actors on that one movie, or the other movie that uh, stars Zac Efron that's shooting there, Ricky Stenicky at the moment. There are dozens of speaking roles available for Australians on that movie. This is how Australians have built such a remarkable profile for their actors in Hollywood. Yes. Because there are so many um, big opportunities, financial opportunities for, for actors to apply their craft. And we, the, 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 the organisations here in New Zealand on screen, um, the Film Commission, are valiantly trying to continue to build those opportunities for New Zealand actors so that we can make pathways and staircases for our actors, directors, writers, producers to climb up the, um, the the slope and create global careers. But at the end of the day, it comes back to money and population. I, I think population is a big part. I've recently written that we should have a much bigger population and been slammed for it. But there you go. Um, well, well I, I agree up. with you. I agree with you. Let's wrap up by asking you the questions I ask every guest. We call it general knowledge. What's the best night out you've ever had? Oh, my goodness. The best <laughs> night out. The best night out. I've ever, okay, here's the best night out I've ever had. My friend from Kreish came around to our house at two in the morning to look after our three- and four-year-old. No, they must have been six- and seven-year-old so that I could go to Wellington Hospital and give birth to Davida. That was a good night out. <laughs> and I always look back at her and I go, thank you, Susan Fogarty, for coming around when um, I went into labour at two in the morning to look after our little children so that I could go and have number three. That was pretty remarkable. And, um, you know, and that um, the, the joy of that occasion is still echoing because um, 16 years later I love being the mother of three children and then four children when you think about uh, my beloved stepdaughter, Sarah Allen. Fantastic. That was not what I was expecting, Miranda. I was I was <laughs> well, that's, hoping that's for what came into my mind. shots with Tom Cruise or something. But, you know, it's okay. It's a, it, it was it was meaningful uh, none, nonetheless. And, uh, I, no, I, I will tell good. you a story, though. I'll tell you a funny a funny story about um, another night, a glamorous night out, which is what I think you were thinking. Well, I'm, a, I'm a family person, more of the no, no, no. person. I, but, but I do tell to, us, tell us, yeah. I've been to many, many glamorous parties with Thomason and um, and I was at one party. I was at one party and Thomason was talking to a very handsome young man. I can only see him from behind. 
they were talking very animatedly. Um, Kirsten Dunst was there in a big blue dress like a meringue. It was full of stars. Lulu Wang was there. It was full of very, very famous people. And Thomason was chatting away at this guy. And, um, and now I forget his name. And, um, and then she came over. She went, oh, that guy was so interesting, Mum. He knew so much about rugby. And um, and I said, oh, yeah, who, who was he? And he walked away. Then he turned around and I saw it was the guy from Fifty Shades of Grey. Right. It was that very, very famous Irish actor from Fifty Shades of Grey who's, because he's Irish, he's passionate about rugby. Yes. But she had no idea who he was. It really made me laugh. Love it. If you could be any animal, what would it be and why? I would be an otter because they are so um, flexible and light. And um, and that's a quality that I admire. I love flexibility and um, and and s- sneakiness, and the and kind of invisibility. So that's um, and sleekness. They're they're the things that I admire. My mother always liked the otter best at the Auckland Zoo. Did she? Something about an otter playing in the water and around the rocks. Yes. So you know that's I I think that's a good choice. <laughs> Who would you most likely to be trapped in a lift with? My husband, of course. <laughs> Good answer. And if it wasn't him? If it wasn't him, Brian Green, the famous string theory cosmologist. <laughs> because that would be a very interesting comment. There's another cosmologist that I follow, uh, Brian Cox. But I would prefer yes. to be in a lift with Brian. Green. I know of Cox. I don't. I, I don't know Mr. Green, but I'm going to look him up straight after yeah. this. He's coming to Auckland, and it's going to be very interesting. Does he sort of speak at the town hall or something? Yeah, yeah, he does it's like a, a performance. public lecture. Yeah, it's a public lecture. Amazing. And but but don't, now that you've asked that question, I'm bound to meet him in a lift somewhere. It will happen, and you will think of me too, Miranda. It's been so good to have you. Absolute delight. Thanks so much. I've really enjoyed our conversation. You've been listening to Generally Famous Stuff Podcast. There's a new episode every Wednesday. You can listen to them all at stuff.co.nz slash generallyfamous or wherever you get your podcasts. In fact, if you follow us on Apple or Spotify, any of the podcast apps, in fact, you'll get the latest episode automatically. Sounds good, right? Thanks to my producers, Chris Reed and Jen Black, and audio editor, Connor Scott. I'm Simon Bridges. I really appreciate you listening. If you like this podcast please support our work. Visit stuff.co.nz slash support. If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead, The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts.